track of the passages, you're going to note that I skipped over verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3, which we'll be getting to later in the summer. But um, if you see, if you read that passage and you know, Kenneth, that I've been on vacation all week, you'll see why I didn't preach on that passage this week. So we are preaching on marriage this week, and then when I get back from vacation, we're going to pick this up again in verses 1 through 6. And chapter 3, verse 7, is this, this one verse connection point to husbands, but really we're applying this in a sense to everyone. And some of you are saying like, oh great, you know, not only is this about marriage, this is about strictly to husbands, verse 7, and some of you are in high school, some of you are in elementary school, some of you are single, some of you never want to be married, all that. So basically at what is here, like after the first service, somebody came up to me and said, I was divorced several years ago and I saw this passage and I was like, oh great. But she said, this really is just about human relationships. And ultimately, that's true. What does the gospel do for us? But specifically, obviously, we're applying this to marriage this morning. As we begin, though, I want to stop and I want to pray for us that we would have ears to hear what God has to say, no matter what our state in life is. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit has inspired your scripture. And that as we read it just now, um, that we are not reading the words of a man, even though Peter wrote this letter but we're reading your very word, uh, words that you inspired through your Holy Spirit, and that you are delivering to us today a fresh word, a new, not a new word, but an ancient word that is true for us today as it was in Peter's day when he wrote 2,000 years ago. And I pray, Lord, that we would have ears to hear what you have to say. And I pray that God, regardless of our state, whether we're single, married, students, uh, that you would give us a desire to have your will in our life, that we would not be bent by the spirit of this age, but that we would be shaped and molded and conformed to to your Holy Spirit. None of us, Father, are righteous. None of us are perfect. We desperately need your word in our lives. And so, again this morning, I pray, I pray for us. I pray for our marriages in this church. And I pray for those that are particularly in a difficult situation, that you would bring humility, that you would bring repentance, that you would bring an open spirit that we may see growth in all of our marriages and all of our human relationships. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to read the verse in just a minute, but leave your Bible open if you would. Every year, this is kind of surprising to me, but every year, two to three people accidentally fall into the Grand Canyon. And I get that there are people that go there with the intent of jumping in. They're taking their own life. But like literally every year, like two to three people accidentally go in. Now, what I find surprising about that is that, yeah, like, you know it's there. <laughs> like, you're driving to the Grand Canyon, you're there on purpose, you see the danger, you know it's literally the largest chasm on planet Earth, you know it's over a mile deep, you see its expanse, and yet every single year, somebody falls in. What do you think the greatest risk factor is for falling into the Grand Canyon? Accidentally. Being a dude, just being a guy puts you statistically... Your greatest probability as being a male human being under the age of 40 is, is the greatest risk factor. And that's, then why? How does this happen? In every instance, it's through carelessness. There's a 38-year-old father that recently was standing there with his family pretending to fall when he fell to his death. And so it's through carelessness that Northern Arizona University talks about how it's through going solo, it's, it's leaving your group, it's getting off the path, and it's doing something silly or careless in the midst of great 
danger. Now, no one is surprised in our culture when they hear that people generally are getting divorced. No one is surprised by that. It's so pervasive, it's so normal now in our culture that like, nobody's surprised by divorce. We're often surprised by a particular divorce. I never thought they would get divorced. But what I find interesting over my 20-something years of ministry is this, that I have had a number of people come into my office, study, home, whatever, coffee shop, and tell me, my wife, my husband wants a divorce. Did you see this coming, I asked. Did you know this was coming? No, I had no idea. They're, they're utterly surprised. They are utterly dumbfounded that their spouse wants a divorce, and it's caught them utterly and completely off guard. They, they did not see it coming. Now, my observation is this, is that far too many couples are being careless at the very precipice of this great chasm that is divorce, and you know what's on the other side, but there's a carelessness around this, this cliff that when people go over, it's death emotionally, it's, it's death to families, it's death to people individually, and there is a carelessness at the, the very precipice of this great chasm. And what I see, I think particularly this is true of Christians, because two Christians, if they get divorced, I mean, if you're really truly a, a follower of Jesus, you say to one another, when you get married, I really mean what I'm saying here, right? Until death do us part. I really mean that I do not believe in divorce. I mean, I, I understand it's a thing, but like, I don't believe that I will get divorced. I don't plan on getting divorced. I'm covenanting with you until I die, right? That's our commitment. And I think because of that commitment, we then feel sort of this freedom to dance dangerously close to the edge of the cliff because we think, well, I've committed to never get a divorce. And so I don't have to necessarily be as careful in the way I treat my spouse, and it is to our great harm that we do this. I think Christians are guilty of this. We dance very close to the edge, perhaps, in the way we treat one another. And the call this morning is this. If you don't believe in getting divorced, then, through the power of grace, and it's truly, for many of us, it's through the power of prayer alone and, and the grace of God in our lives. If you don't believe in getting divorced, then through the power of grace, quit treating your spouse like you do. That's a hard word, but what we're going to talk about today 1 Peter 3.7 is a word to husbands, but really it's a word to all of us, all of us in every human context and relationship, but meant to be applied specifically in marriage. Peter writes this, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. There's two things we're going to look at this morning in this passage. One is this, understand your wife, and second is honor your wife. Understand and honor, and then finally, how on earth do we do this? Understand your wife. He says this, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, and there's two facets to this, this phrase and how it can be interpreted, and I want to look at both of them. First is the obvious one, the, the more straightforward one that you're probably thinking of, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And we take that to mean live with your spouse, your wife, uh, with empathy, with loving kindness, with compassion, with care, with thoughtfulness, appreciation, and love. 
Live with your wives in an understanding way. Be an understanding husband, right? And this is our call, (laughs) men, husbands. Love your wives in such a way that is compassionate, loving, patient, kind, and so forth. Now, a few years ago, some friends of mine noticed that I have this dual personality, and during the summer, I'm much more relaxed. So, like, uh, it's currently summer, so this, in theory, should be true of me right now. So, uh, especially on vacation, and and this friend of mine coined this nickname of me and, and calls it Summer Scott. So they like Summer Scott, and they talk about Summer Scott, and like, Summer Scott's awesome, <laughs> like, you're so relaxed, you're so chilled, and so uh, Summer Scott's a thing now, so like, my son Jacob has created a playlist on Spotify called Summer Scott, you can, you can follow it, there's like 165 amazing songs on there that reflect what is Summer Scott and what Summer Scott's all about, so like, Summer Scott wears shorts a lot and flip-flops, and Summer Scott is spontaneous, and he's fun, and he doesn't get upset that easy, uh, Summer Scott's not busy, Summer Scott takes long bike rides on the beach, and this sounds ridiculous, but like plays tennis, and like just ready to have a good time, right? That's Summer Scott. Well, (laughs) so Summer Scott is all this fun-loving thing. The problem, though, is that real Scott goes on vacation with Summer Scott. (laughs) See, real Scott, normal Scott, ordinary Scott, has just come through several months every year when we go on vacation in the summer of, of stress and strain that is my life right? So leading a church, leading a family, being me, pressures, strains, all that. There's difficulty. And I bring that into vacation mode. And especially that first week, there's this expectation that Summer Scott will come out. What I found in myself, one week of vacation does very little good for me, just to be honest. Uh, It takes like nine or 10. No, I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) The first week is just me sort of getting out of ordinary Scott and into Summer Scott mode. And my, my sons praise Summer Scott when they see evidence of Summer Scott. And they'll say, I see that Summer Scott. Like, and they'll, I see you, I see you. And like, though, if I dress a particular way, if I act, it's like Summer Scott. We like Summer Scott. And then if ordinary Scott creeps in, like, Summer Scott, like, <laughs> this is not the way you're supposed to act right now. And they, so they praise Summer Scott. They scold ordinary Scott. Young couples are often like Summer Scott. You know what I mean? They're fun. They're optimistic. They're easygoing because the realities of life and marriage have not yet fully taken root. Now, when Becky and I, this was especially true for me and Becky, and we were warned, greatly warned, your first marriage is going to be, first year of marriage is just going to be, not first marriage, your first, <laughs> first year of marriage. You got to just get that first one over. You know, now, first year of marriage is really hard. Just brace yourself. And we just kept looking at each other the first 12 months going, uh, well, when's the bad stuff supposed to happen? This was just fun. Uh, we had no money, but we didn't care. Uh, lived in a little apartment. Uh, Becky sold plasma to earn money. It was ridiculous. Like, we were just getting by, but it was really, really fun, and we just had a blast. Same with year two. Same with year three. But over time, what happens is things begin to get more difficult. Life, stress, finances begin to become more of a stress, right? Uh, you have a child. We had one child. We had another child. And then we had a third child. And, uh, and that was great, by the way. And uh, so, but the thing is, like all the realities of life, life begins to get difficult the older you get. Uh, your health can be difficult. Work is difficult when both spouses work. All these things, all these stresses, all these strains begin more and more and more difficult. And you hear this list, live with your spouse in an understanding way. And, and I say that means to be kind, be kind to one another, be kind to your spouse. 
be loving, be patient, be understanding. You say, that's, that's what I want. This has always been my goal. This is what I've always envisioned my marriage would be like, that I would be understanding and kind and loving and passionate and so forth, but, and she would be loving and kind and passionate. But the realities of life begin to break in, and the real difficulties and strains and stress of life make it very difficult on a marriage what happens over time is you begin to back up and you begin to back up and you begin to back up more and more and more. God's will, if you're a student of the Bible, you know is this, from Genesis 1 and 2 and then reiterated again by Jesus Christ himself and then the Apostle Paul is that the two shall leave their family of origin and they shall become one flesh. And Jesus said, whoever is one flesh in God's sight, let no man tear apart. There's there's meant to be a oneness, a profound oneness. And yet through our own selfishness and sin and life and strain, there's often great distance. And that is the ordinary of our broken marriages. God's will is one flesh, unity, love, deep intimacy. And, and yet the reality of life and our own brokenness and sin equals great distance between one another. You hurt me, I hurt you back. You say something unkind to me, I say something unkind to you. You, you, you know, back up emotionally for me, I can feel it, so I'm going to take another step away from you as well. But Peter points us to Jesus in the context of this passage throughout, before, before the context of verse 7 and after, and he says this, things like this, that Jesus Christ, when reviled, which means hated, did not revile in return. When Jesus was hit, beaten, spat upon, all these, all these horrible things that happened to Jesus, he did not revile in return. Instead, what he, did he do? He loved us, his bride, unto death. And so we are called, husbands in particular, to love even when not loved in return, to, to, not, to, to give back what we get. If you're being reviled, to not revile in return, but instead to bring grace and love and care. Here's the thing that I found that's so interesting is so many of our problems in marriage are not the big issues, and certainly some of you have big issues. I mean, there's been enormous brokenness, enormous sin against one another. But what I find in, in most marriages is this. Often what precedes these enormous sins against one another is a million just mundane sins against one another or frustrations that get blown out of proportion and made bigger and bigger and bigger. Have you noticed that, how the small things in marriage are often the things that just keep, keep us backing away from one another and not, not working together? It's these small things. So we're, we're on vacation last week um, on the beach in California, and I decide to be heroic and go to the grocery store. So, and going to the grocery store at this, in this context is not easy necessarily. Like you, I had to borrow somebody's car because mine parked way down the road and all this other. So I borrowed somebody's car, and before I went, I just went to every adult in the house, and there are lots. It's kind of hard to explain, but there are two families vacationing together along with like a bunch of friends of my brother-in-law's that just are always there. So I went to every adult and said, hey, not that I have a problem with that. And then I just said, hey, every, every adult, like going to the store, anybody need anything? Going to the store. And everyone's like, no, I think we're all good. I'm like, hey, person making dinner, going to the store, you need anything for dinner? Nope, everything's good. We don't need anything. Okay, great. So I take my list, I get everything on my list, plus a couple other fun things, and I bring it back, and I feel really good, and to reward myself, I get on my beach cruiser, and I tell Becky I'm going on, going to go on a bike ride on the, on the boardwalk. So I get, I don't know, a quarter of a mile away, and I get a phone call and say, guess what, we don't have sour cream. 
this is one of my greatest pet peeves in life. Like when I go to the store and, and I check my own list and I go to the store and I don't get something that I want even, like I'll literally walk out of there. Like I go there for this reason and forget. Now when I, it's amazing how much grace I have for myself when I do that. Like, oh, what an idiot. You know, I, I go to the, like, to the store to get milk and I, I bought donuts. So, um, but when other people do this to me, it makes me mad. You know what I'm saying? So like, I'm, I'm supposed to be Summer Scott, just chilling on my bike. It's all good. And she calls and says, we don't have sour cream. I'm like, well, I'm like half a mile away now on my bike. You know, she goes, well, can you go? Could you go? There's this little market over there. And I go, okay, I go to the market. And it was like $90 for a little thing of <laughs> sour cream, like this big. So I decide to go down to the grocery store to Vaughn's. Like, it's like a mile and a half away from that point. And I'm feeling again, like, I'm, I can't believe this, and I'm being so put out. And I go out and I get it, and as I'm biking back in the wind, you know, <laughs> at the beach, it's beautiful, it's glorious, I should just be summer-scotting this and just loving it, but instead I'm just like, ah, and then I get a call and say, well, they're starting dinner because, and I'm just seething, okay? Now, Congratulations. On the technicalities, maybe I get a little ribbon. I went to the store, and I asked everyone, you need anything? And I went, and then I went all the way over there again and got some sour cream. So congratulations, you win. You did something, not really. This is a very neutral thing. Like, there's, there's no right or wrong in this. People forget stuff. People forget that they don't have sour cream, but it made me angry. And it's these little things that happen that I bring that back into my marriage. Going, I can't believe it. You know, like instead of like going, hey, you know what? Everybody forgets something and we should just all move on. And, and actually because Jesus is good and the Holy Spirit is alive. And my wife told me like, it's really okay. People forget sour cream. You know, I'm like, oh, okay, you're right. You're right. But the point is this, what happens when these little things become big things and like, congratulations, you get a prize. Let's give you a little trophy. You win, but you lose. You lose because you're destroying your marriage, which is more important than winning this stupid little argument about who forgot what or sour cream or the long distance or whatever. It's ridiculous what we do to one another because most of these things that we're arguing about don't matter. They don't matter. But your marriage, that matters. That matters a lot. And so when we win the battle and lose the war, which is your marriage, who cares? Maybe you should lose some more arguments in your marriage in order to maintain some grace in your relationship. And this is true in every human relationship, by the way. Maybe lose, maybe you're technically right on some trivia. You don't have to bring it up every time. Maybe, maybe you're right in an instance. But again, winning in the particulars can often mean losing in the marriage. And it's not, it is not worth it. The second layer of this phrase, live with your wives in an understanding way, is this. The first one is the obvious one. Be empathetic, be kind, be loving. The second, though, is what it literally means in the original language, and it's this. Living together according to knowledge. According to knowledge. Living together. Husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge. And what that means is to have knowledge of your wife. To have knowledge of your wife. And so God through the Holy Spirit and through Peter's authorship, is asking you men to do something that's hard for most of us. It's to be intuitive 
and it's, it's to be observant, and it's to read into and to understand your wife emotionally, spiritually. It's not to just know facts about your wife, like what's her birthday, what's her favorite color. Like these are givens, okay? You should know that. Instead, this is to have knowledge of the depth of your wife, what is going on in the heart of your wife, and to know her well. In order that, you can shepherd her and pastor her. What does that look like? What are her greatest fears? What keeps your wife up at night? What are her greatest insecurities? What is she most feeling insecure about? And then how can you then say, honey, in a teachable moment, be careful when you bring this stuff up, this is how I think the good news of Jesus is applying to what you're dealing with. I sometimes wait for months, honestly, for these conversations. And then you need to ask permission (laughs) into these conversations at times. But sometimes there's a window of opportunity for my wife to speak to me or for me to speak to her and to say, I think this is a way in which you're not yet fully embracing how good Jesus is for you. You're still, you're believing something else that isn't true. There's a tape, there's a message in your mind that's saying, I need this for life to make sense. I have to be able to control this. I have to have this thing in my life. I have to have that thing in my life. And and there's an opportunity when you really know someone to be able to say, but that's really not true. And this isn't just husbands to wives. Becky does this for me all the time. But like, it's to be able to speak into her heart, but you have to know her to do that. In a sense, husbands, you're called to pastor your family, like your kids and your wife, and and obviously there's an equality there with the spouse, but you're called called to lead spiritually, and to do that, it's to be observant and to listen and to pray, ask the Holy Spirit, what is going on here so that I can bring the good news of Jesus to bear in my wife's heart? You have knowledge about a lot of stuff, guys. Whatever your hobbies are, you have knowledge about that. Nothing wrong with that. Some of you have already started your fantasy football team knowledge. Like, you're already cranking. Like, you're doing your research. And, you know, ultimately, there's nothing wrong with that. I think it can get a little out of control. But, like, I'm just saying, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's, you have knowledge. Here's the thing. You have knowledge about stuff you're interested in. Are you interested enough in the human beings that God has placed in your family? Then this is your calling. To know them your wife, to know her, to love her so well, you understand her and then can apply the good news of God's word to her life. The next thing I want us to see is understanding your wife. The next thing is honoring your wife through several different layers. Honor your wife. The next phrase is this, show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now we've got to talk about that. The weaker vessel. What does that mean? I'm going to read to you what the study notes say from the ESV Bible because I'm just terrified to try to define this myself. Weaker vessel probably means that men are generally physical stronger than women and therefore may be tempted to threaten their wives through physical or verbal abuse. And that's true uh, particularly in this culture. It's true in our culture also, but in this culture where women have no rights, very little value, they were not honored, uh, you could abuse your wife with no social or legal ramifications, you could take advantage of her in any way possible, and Peter comes and says, no, honor her as the weaker vessel. Now, what does he mean by that? He does not mean that, that, that you're not equal in Christ or equal as human beings, and you say, well, how do you know that? Because he says weaker vessel. I know that because he says this, 
since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. You're created both in the image of God, uniquely created over the rest of all of creation, Adam and Eve are, and they are equal in God's sight, equal in terms of their spiritual relationship with him, equal in every respect, but yet what he's saying here is this whole weaker thing is basically just that, that generally, physically, they're generally physically stronger. You say, well, I know lots of women that are stronger than you, Scott. They could beat you up, and that's true. <laughs> but what he's saying is like the strongest guy versus the strongest woman, you get it, and I'm being defensive. Let's move on. <laughs> now, the thing I want you to see here, though, is this. This text is actually, we look at this in bristle and go, ah, oh, this is so countercultural. I can't believe the Bible calls a weaker vessel. But I want you to see, actually, this is far more countercultural to their culture. He's telling this patriarchal, abusive culture where women are devalued and marginalized constantly. He's telling them, husbands, honor your wives as heirs of the grace of life. That was unheard of in that culture. <laughs> that was unheard of in that day. And the gospel now is being brought to bear on these people, and he's saying, Honor your wife. The world says you don't have to, but the gospel demands that you must. Honor her. How? Through your faithfulness. And I, before I get into that, I just want to say this. Fathers, your, your children desperately need to see you honoring your wife in all the ways that we're going to talk about just now. Your children need to see you honoring your wife, and here's why. If you have daughters they are going to be peering into how you're treating your wife and then they're going to take that as an expectation of how they should be treated. If you're verbally abusive to your wife, your daughters are going to go out in the world saying, well, that's what I expect. If you're physically abusive or emotionally abusive or manipulating your wife, what they're going to do is then go, well, this is how I should expect to be treated. Is that really what you want for your daughter? Fathers, your sons need to see you honoring your wife because they will go out into the world, marry a woman, and they will treat that woman the way you're treating your wife most likely. And here's the deal, dads, husbands. Hardly any of us have had good examples of this. And you say, well, I, I'm, I was just a guy too, and I'm bringing that stuff. I'm bringing my baggage into the world. Well, it's time to be shaped by grace more than your past. It's time to now be shaped by the gospel more than what you saw in your own home. Now be walking in what Christ is calling us to walk in because there's too much at stake for the next generation. Walk with Jesus in such a way that you honor your wife, honor her with your faithfulness. Men, men, every one of us in this room, I mean every one of us, we are all prone to the sins that are common to all men, every one of us. And there's a call for us men as we love Jesus to say, that's not okay. There's a temptation to look around and go, look, every dude I know has wandering eyes. What do I do? I'm a dude. Jesus says, no, <laughs> I want more for that for you. Don't give permission to your heart just to wander with your eyes and look everywhere and, and, and have lust for women that aren't yours. Like, don't give yourself permission don't give your, your children permission. Seeking intimacy in images and videos, that's always false intimacy. And we know that, but you, you keep going there. But don't, don't give yourself permission. Don't just say, well, I'm a dude. Of course I'm going to do that. No. You need help. You need brothers who can help. This church wants to be that help. There is a group, a brand new 
group of men that are forming together to confess together and walk together in this brokenness of sexual stuff and come speak to me. There's, there's a group available for that. The Vegas effect, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Is there a greater lie in the universe? Do, you, do we really think there's a place on planet Earth that stuff just stays, you know, like, well, I can do whatever I want right here in this zip code because it all stays right here. I don't know if you've noticed, there is no privacy anymore. We all have phones. Everything's video. There is no place to hide. And even if there was, God sees everything. No room for emotional affairs. No room for actual affairs. Honor your wife through your faithfulness. Single women, are you dating a guy who's unfaithful to you and making excuses? Well, he's immature. What do you think he will do when you put a ring on his finger and he stands before a group of people and makes vows, you think somehow that's going to automatically like a wand, it's going to change everything. It's not. Single women, what's happening now is the best predictor of what's going to happen in the future, but it gets worse. It gets more difficult because now you're covenanted together and it's much more is on, uh, on, is more at stake. Single men and women, be faithful to God now with your sexuality whether you're a teenager, whether you're an adult, regardless, now, honor your future spouse now by your faithfulness to God. Next, honor your wife physically. Never physically intimidate your wife. Never threaten her. Don't get in her face. There's just no room for this for a Christian man. Some of you were raised this way. Some of you saw this in your home. Some of you, that's your natural inclination but you've got to get help. Men, if this is your natural bent, you've got to get help. This is not okay. This is not the way to treat any human being, but especially the wife for whom you're supposed to be laying down your life. Women, this is like a seminar today. Single women, young women, if you're dating a guy who is physically abusive, emotionally abusive, manipulative in that way, run, Things don't change just because you get married. You're not going to change him. This is not your responsibility. You're not his mommy. Run. Third, honor your wife with your words. We honor our wives when we tell them that we love them. We remind them how beautiful they are to us. When we speak up and say, I, I love you, when I, I, I have to admit, this is an area where I excel. I have so many other areas where I really struggle, but I will often go up to Becky and just say, you're as beautiful as the day I met you. I love you. I'm just so captivated by you. If I weren't dating you, I would be doing, or married you, I'd do everything I could to get you to go out with me. And believe me, lots of other areas where I blow it with my words because I'm too sarcastic and I joke around too much. I'm, I'm, the, verb, the verbalness gets me in trouble in both directions, but we're called to honor our wives with our words, honor them privately, how we speak to them in private. Honor them publicly, how you speak about your wife in public. Finally, honor your wife with your worship. I think there's this aspect, guys, where we're too aggressive in some areas of life and we're too passive in others, right? We're too aggressive in some areas of life, and, and God's wired us to be aggressive. We start stuff, we build stuff, that's good, but sometimes we take that, that intensity and it's too intense. Other times, though, there's a tendency to be passive, like Adam, to stand passively by as Satan is literally tempting his wife 
to do the most evil thing that's going to lead to literally the undoing of humanity. And Adam just kind of stands there checking it out, watching silently. And I think there's a carryover for us men spiritually where we often back up and don't take responsibility spiritually for our family. Men, take responsibility. Is it always your wife asking to pray? Is it always your wife saying, gosh, we haven't been to church in a while? Is it always your wife saying, we really should read together? Is it always your wife initiating spiritually? It's time, men, to pray with your wife, to pray with your children, to read scripture with your family. You're like, but my wife knows a million times more about the Bible than I do. It doesn't matter. This isn't a contest about who knows more. This is about you loving your bride and praying with her and praying for her and taking initiative. Now, what do we do, though, finally? What do we do? Some of you literally are like right here, and many of us are, are dangerously close, but you're, you're like at the edge of the Grand Canyon. You're flirting with disaster. You're not being careful with the way you talk to one another. You're not being careful with, you, you know, you're withholding things that you should be saying, you're not saying, and, and you're saying stuff you shouldn't be saying. You're doing things you should not be doing to one another, and, and yet you're not doing other things that you should be doing. And, and there's all this junk, and you're just like tempting, and you're saying, well, we're never going to get divorced. We're never going to divorce. But you're, you're treating each other like we believe in divorce. And it's got to stop at some point. It's got, the cycle has to stop. And it goes very, very deep. I get it. And you hear, like, live with your wife in an understanding way, and do this, and do that. And it sounds like all this law, right? It sounds like just a seminar with a million things that are impossible for you to do. Well, I don't come here this morning saying you need to just do all this stuff and it's all about religion. You know what religion is? Religion is like handing a 20-pound Bible to a man that's drowning and say, you know, read this manual. Read this law. Read this thing. Not that the Bible's law, but like here's a 20-pound here's a manual on how to swim as you're drowning. You try to figure that out. It sinks you. That's going to crush you. But you can begin with prayer. Do not underestimate the power of God's work in your life when you humble yourself and you pray, and you begin to pray for your marriage. You begin to pray for your wife. You begin to pray for your husband. And more than that, it's to, it's to look at the gospel as you pray, to be thinking about the way that the gospel can shape you and begin to shape your marriage. You've hurt one another deeply. And it it's often been over these stupid things like sour cream and who, who did what and why didn't you say this and why did you do that and why don't you go to the store and why don't you mow the grass and I can't believe I always have to pick up the kids. And what happens is you take one step away and one step away, one step away and now there's a grand canyon of emotion. You know, there's just too much distance. And the only way this thing is going to break down and there's going to be hope in this thing is for you guys just to honestly say we've gotten to a place we... We should not be. We need to start breaking this cycle. Men, if, if you're listening this morning, actually listening, let it begin with you. Take ownership and begin to say, honey, here's where I think we stand and here's where we need to go. We've got to quit doing this to one another. Wives, the same. Either you can let the grace of God and Jesus shape you into the husbands and wife God's intends or you can continue to flirt with disaster at the edge. Peter says, wives and husbands are heirs in the grace of life. You are heirs together in the grace of life. 
in Christ, we don't get what we deserve. We get grace. I want you to think about that. What would, what would you get from God if you got what you deserved? <laughs> Spiritual divorce. If you're like, hey, if you treated your spouse, <laughs> or if God treated you like you're treating your spouse oftentimes, you know what you would get? Spiritual divorce. If God, if God treated you the way you deserve, meaning, like if God actually gave you what you deserve, what you would get is distance, you'd get a no when you pray, you'd get nothing but cold-hearted divorce. No. If you got what you deserved. But in Jesus Christ, you don't get what you deserve. You get his mercy and his grace and his steadfast loving kindness. You get his mercy. You don't get what you deserve at all. You get his grace and his kindness and his love. And then in turn, though, we take, instead of taking grace, we're bringing the law into our marriage and treating each other with all this, but you did this to me and you did this to me. Listen, the gospel has got to shape us into the wives and the husbands that we need to be. And it begins with you understanding in Jesus Christ, you don't get what you deserve. You've gotten mercy and kindness now, now, in light of that. Can you not forgive one another for double trips to the store and, and all the ways you've mistreated and hurt one another. Can we not bring some mercy and some grace into our marriage? On our vacation, we go with uh, one of our brother-in-laws, Dave, and Dave's really into music, but at the beach, he really only has two or three artists he listens to, and one of them is, is Jack Johnson. It's like Jack Johnson all day, all night. Like about 8 to 10 a.m., Jack Johnson begins, and about the time we go to bed, about midnight, Jack Sean turns off. So it's like all day, you know, brush fire fairy tales, banana pancake. It's just all Jack Johnson, which is perfect for the beach. It's the right kind of music. And, and it's just, it begins to just get in your brain. It's just on. It's always on. It's just in your brain. When you're even out at the beach and not at the house, like you just hear it, Jack Johnson. You're just grooving. Summer Scott's jamming to Jack Johnson. And in a sense, what you need desperately, Christian, is for the gospel to become the soundtrack of your heart no matter where you are, no matter what's happening, it's just this thing that keeps repeating in your life, this idea that you need Jesus, that he's given you mercy and kindness and grace, and then letting that trickle into how you're treating other people, especially those whom you are covenantally bound to. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Jesus has been so good to me. He's forgiven me so much. How can I not, how can I not just forgive all these things that are going on in my marriage? How can I not let that go? In every marriage, we hurt each other. We let each other down. Some of it's intentional, some of it isn't, but the gospel means to shape and change us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. <clears throat> who never gives up on us in spite of our sin, as we reflect, God, how many times we have to come to you and beg for your mercy. How often we, have, we come back literally with the same story. I did it again. I did the same thing again. I said the same thing. I, I thought the same thought. Our motives are often so wrong. Our hearts are often so far from you. And yet in you, we keep, we keep receiving mercy and kindness and forgiveness and love and steadfast a steadfast commitment to our salvation and our growth. And so, Father, I beg you to 
work that into our hearts in such a way that we, it changes the way that husbands are husbands and it changes the way that wives are wives and that it changes the way single people expect their marriage to be and they plan for. So Father, shape us, mold us by your good news. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.